You're listening to And Now. I'm Karen Beach. Jessica Pope. Lizzie Trelawney-Vernon. Zachary Heiler. So Zach, you're actually joining us for the first time on our second installment of And Now. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm actually an internship here this quarter um, at UW. Uh, I was interested in an internship because of how ArtsWire kind of used uh, um, electronics via email to communicate uh, with the art society around the whole U.S., which is kind of exciting and helped me pursue my own personal artwork. Um, and leading to that, I'm actually a, having a Bachelor of Fine Arts as well as a double minor uh, art history and uh, architecture. So Wonderful, wonderful. So your involvement in the, the internship here and working on ArtsWire is going to be with the files? or Yeah, that's right. You have a, a lot of boxes of the files from Anne. Um, which has been really exciting to kind of dig in from the, my boxes from the, the 1994 and 93, um, which was an interesting time for ArtsWire. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm sure we're going to see some things coming out of those boxes in the near future. Exactly. Today we're also joined by Anne Folk and Tomer Peterson. So we're actually going to be having a prolonged discussion today about the culture wars and the NEA. So we're actually really returning to some of the time periods surrounding the beginning of Arts Wire. Um, does anyone want to say a little bit about what exactly that, that time period was going to be? I was interested to note is that there was a period of time, actually I have, I have some little notes so I could get this right. And Within the arts community nationally, people started using culture wars to refer specifically to the controversies that surrounded the vetoing of grants at the NEA, and then later uh, some uh, similar activities uh, having to do with the work uh, of Andres Serrano and Robert Magelthorpe. Right, so the NEA is the National Endowment of the Arts, yes. which provides funding for artists, including those two that were just mentioned. Yeah, and some of the institutions that displayed some of this work. But there was a period of time, and I would say that's maybe 1989, maybe for the next five or six years, when Culture Wars was being discussed within the arts community, almost exclusively relating to freedom of expression issues. It was picked up outside of the arts and became a broader discussion uh, in about 1991, and uh, this was... Uh, boy, this is going to get really complicated to explain exactly what happened. There was a book, though, that came out called Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America by James Davison Hunter. And that took the terminology into a much broader spectrum. And at that point, Culture Wars really had to do with politics, with left versus right, with the rise of sort of conservative Christianity. And it was not only an arts and culture topic. It was about sexuality. It was about liberals versus conservatives. So there's kind of two trends of thought, or two uses of that term, yeah. uh, and they merged, and I'm sure you know these are like many things, things in terminology pop up in different places. Mm -hmm. uh, the, it was interesting, the most recent search that I came up with actually was something in the New York Post from January 23rd from two days ago, which is an article that was titled, How Trump is Remaking the Culture Wars. And who's that guy? Uh, you know, I didn't note that down. It was just yeah, in the post a couple of days ago. There was certainly but this expansion of what the culture wars was referring to. So it was used within the arts community to talk about censorship, but then within the writings, particularly of James and David Hunter, with that book, it was also talking about abortion, it was talking about gun laws, global warming, environmentalist issues more generally. 
Um, also dealing with privacy, which is something that also uh, related to the arts and their consideration of it, uh, drug use, homosexuality, the civil rights movement, feminism, as well as, again, censorship. So it was all kind of coming together as this big divide or proposed as this large divide, whereas in the arts community, there was more of a sense of unity. Would you say that that's correct? Mm -hmm. I, I, um, I don't know how you mean unity, but I think all of those same issues, mm -hmm. I mean, many of those issues were quite present um, uh, through the rise of the AIDS crisis that, that factored in and brought in lots of different, um, I mean, that was the, the arts. The arts were really involved. It was a, an organization in visual aids that came up with the little red ribbon. Um, and that's now kind of ubiquitous and used as a form in lots of places. So the, the arts got big, and, and homosexuality obviously was very much wrapped up in, in all of that. So. <laughs> you're not disturbed, I swear to God. <laughs> I'm, I'm calling that. I was probably splitting hairs, and what I was just really trying to clarify is that when we're talking about culture wars in that time period, we're talking about a discussion about freedom of expression that was really confined to the arts. Mm -hmm. And the term later, and probably at the same time, was also used in a larger context. So they're not in opposition, it's really sort of parallel tracks. Yeah, yeah. No, so anyway, that's I say I'm semantically nitpicking a little oh, bit. Here, but one of the advantages that they have in going through the files is that they can read some of those old, you know, that email that we were exchanging back and forth with each other. I don't know whether that's, whether you run across those yet, but because the National Campaign for Freedom of Expression was a member and Visual AIDS was part of, you know, it's like those conversations began to happen. And, and since I printed out an awful lot of what we did online, um, they're fi you're finding it in the files. So. Yeah. I think also, um, specifically when it comes to the files, and maybe this is just a little small portion of what's going on in ArtsWire, but uh, there is a part where um, someone mentioned that they felt a little nervous to speak on ArtsWire because of the um, grant makers who were participating on ArtsWire as well. And I think um, that can kind of go both ways in the sense that it can make you feel nervous because these people who are potentially going to give you a grant uh, could be judging you here, but also the grant makers can be judged and uh, sort of are a face for whatever organization they are a part of. So um, especially being on a couple of panels and stuff like that, um, do you, like, I don't know, did that occur to you ever on ArtsWire specifically or on other, like, you know, conversations or anything like that? Um, it, was a, it was a topic and it did come up and there's a couple, we have a couple thoughts yeah. going back to that. And one of the things that was happening at that time was this was for almost all the participants a brand new platform and a brand new forum that nobody had any experience in. And from the perspective, you know, now of 2017, we're used to this idea of, oh, I'm posting this or putting some content somewhere online, and I have control over where that goes. I can, that may be a private email, it may be a private email with a disclaimer at the bottom that says you may or may not do this. Um, it may be in a private forum or a semi-public forum or something. Right. And we're all used to thinking in those terms, and at this point, 
this was something no one had imagined, and people were popped up and would be surprised at some point that, you know, they made some comment and then somebody replied that they had no idea was participating yeah. in this forum, even right. though those lists were visible, it wasn't something that one necessarily looked at or was even easy to look at. Um, right, which was sort of so an much easier surprise. today. Yeah. yeah, and similarly, I think institutions were all of a sudden finding, like foundations or even public agencies, that individual staff members who are talking about things or making comments that may or may not be interpreted as policy of the organization. Uh-huh. Um, and I mean, since that time, I know some funders, uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't name names here, there's one very large funder in California that shares the same name with the most common printer that we all use. And I, we won't say their name. <laughs> but so they, have, yes. <laughs> they have policies in place that none of their staff can post online publicly or speak to the press. It all has to go through a press office. The NEA was doing that back then. Yeah. We're trying to figure out how they do that back then. Yeah. Because I remember talking to the people in their press and PR offices yeah. about ArtsWire, and they were beginning to say, well, maybe everything should go through us, and people were getting really yeah. nervous about, about Yeah, there were NEA staff participating, but they were what we now call lurkers. <laughs> right. <laughs> because they were listening and reading, but rarely contributing for that same reason. That right. There was Which is also pretty common today with the internet. I mean, like, social media is essentially made for stalking. So it's it's and pretty. I, I mean, I, I you know Vince Staley, who I think is currently the president of what which of the uh, now called now? Media Impact Funders. Right, right. He's grant makers in film. Right and video. Right. Mm-hmm. He um, he told me once because he's studied this whole world that you have to have a, a thousand people reading something before one person will. I mean, it's like a thousand to one in terms of readers to writers. And I don't know whether that proportion has changed, and I don't think it was as you know as distorted as that back then, or we wouldn't have had because I know we didn't have thousand users. But nonetheless, that it's that kind of. And if you want to call nine hundred ninety nine people workers, you know, that's possible. But it's, it's true. So, in part, ArtsWire was interested in kind of filling this communication gap that was taking place with all of the culture wars kind of gearing up, right? So from the Orcas conference, but even before that, there was some concern that the arts organizations weren't in communication fast enough to be able to keep up with current cultural events. Is that? That was certainly true at the, at the beginning. There was a feeling that um, we really needed to be in touch with one another. The Warhol Foundation back in, I can't remember what, when ArtsWire was really fresh, um, gave a series of artist organizations fax machines, and that was so exciting, because they, and those who had fax machines were not at all interested in learning about email, because now they have the real thing, they have the fax machine, so. Right, right. And, they, and that could go fast, you know, that could send things around quickly, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing, I think also to keep in mind, is the the vetoing of the, of the four artist grants, that sort of was when it really hit the fan at the National Endowment, actually preceded ArtsWire going live by a little over two years. Really? Yeah. When did that happen? That happened, I got to look at my whole skin. That's why I did my homework today. <laughs> In 1989, 
No, it's in 1990 that the Finley, Miller, Fleck, and Holly Hughes grants were mm -hmm. vetoed. That's right around the time that ArtsWire just started. Well, ArtsWire was under discussion and getting well, I think we may, have had, we may have had CompuServe accounts by then. Right. Yeah. But not, no, no national network. I mean, yeah. we, were, we were online and tried to figure it out. The deception yeah. was just yeah. on. Yeah, it was yeah. probably, what do you call it now, a soft launch. Judy Malloy gives 1991 to 92 yeah. as the date that ArtsWire went live, but yeah. I assume she's she means there, so. coming to fruition. Yeah. But, but I'm not going to argue with her. Yeah, yeah, that's probably when we actually. Yeah. Right. And there was a point. Why did I start talking about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, to kind of clarify a little bit um, for people who might not be aware of how the NEA functions, um, but as a federal organization, it provides money to artists to be able to produce their artwork, um, as well as to arts organizations. Yeah, mostly arts organizations now. It used to give much more money directly to artists than it does to them. Yeah, so these were kind of given uh, as, as grants at that time, um, and an artist went through a very careful vetting process before they were awarded this federal grant, uh, and so that was both peer review as well as an application process. And then in 1990, um, several artists actually had their grants uh, recalled or like rescinded, um, and that they were no longer allowed to retain or use that federal money that they had been pledged. Yeah, the grants were awarded by the panel, peer panel reviews, which is in theory the selection process, but there was a, a line in there that allowed the chairman to veto them. They essentially had to have the chairman's approval, which up to that time had pretty much been a rubber stamp affair. I mean, they really left the authority with the discipline departments. But at that time, it was John Fraunmeier? No, it was um, Frank Hossel. That's right. And he, I mean, the chairman has, has, from the beginning, always had all the power, but but until then had sort of allowed the, the discipline panels to make those decisions. Yeah. Maybe I don't know what point I was heading to it <laughs> a little earlier. Was that activity actually preceded a little bit yeah. and was in the press and being discussed and people in the arts community were aware of the implications and were concerned about this. And ArtsWire was coming along sort of at a time when there was a significant need because there was difficulty and ArtsWire was in the business of providing these communication tools and so this almost naturally became one of the topics and one of the centers of activity. So it was less sort of in response to that as it was all of these things sort of moving along at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's this third sort of parallel factor of that, that goes along with that too, is that, um, I how to say this, <laughs> there was a kind of magic in the air about the internet and the information superhighway. Mm -hmm. And it was even, sort of the Time Magazine event of the year or something about the information superhighway and all of this kind of fabulous promise. And at the time, it really wasn't working very well yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it didn't always work and mm -hmm. it hadn't delivered on all of these promises. But that same uh, expectation was appearing now in the arts and cultural communities too. And so ArtsWire was probably, at least on the technology part, was ahead of its time. And there were a number of people, and cheap among them here, and a number of others who were sort of the visionaries who kept saying, oh, well, with this tool and all of these tools, we can do this and this and this, even though the, you know, the toolbox was kind of like the cupboard was a little bit bare at the time. There were certainly some things that worked, but... 
Yeah, I think that's definitely relatable to today too, where it's almost a step further with, um, for instance, a lot of people don't understand how Wi-Fi works, where it's actually cables running underneath like the ocean. And the same with the um, cloud storage, where I know Anne's mentioned that it's this massive piece of land that is heating up because of all this, uh, all these hard drives essentially, right? So. Uh, kind of that same idea of like at first it doesn't really work you know like everybody's cloud storage fills up immediately and it's like not very trustworthy and it's kind of scary to put all your cherished photos up there but uh, eventually we figure it out and kind of sounds like that's how that progress will always work really yeah, yeah. partially it's the technology catching up but also it being normalized that it right. becomes a yeah. component of society something that we use every day and we don't think about it that same extent anymore. Mm -hmm. I think in this case, one of the things that Arxwire provided there, even though the technology was rudimentary at the time, was sort of the vision and the potential there that no arts and culture should not get left behind as all this evolves. Yes, it's some work. In those days, you literally had to learn how to code some things to make some things happen. Right. And we all had these little cheat files where we would cut and paste it so you wouldn't make a mistake the next time you tried to type that complicated thing in. You could copy that in. Uh, but the yeah. fact that some of these people were pushing that ahead, then it was organizations like the National Campaign, I should say the whole name, the National Campaign for Freedom of Expression, sort of got involved mm -hmm. and then started pulling in their set of constituents. People were sort of brought along into this. So it was a, what, a service that was as much vision and potential as it was actually sometimes practically applicable. So to some degree, it was like the, what do you call that? Before you go to kindergarten, you go to preschool. preschool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sound elementary, but that's not getting into, that wasn't even an intentional bad pun. Um, people were warmed up, I think, or uh, what sort of sensitized mm -hmm. to this in a way that, uh, that took away some of the barriers, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can certainly sense that excitement at the air in the boxes that I'm reading at the moment. I'm on the 1991, 92, and now and then you get a little memo, which is just someone being like, I'm online, I finally go online, or just <laughs> the excitement is, is something just completely bonkers now. It's like someone's just won a job or something. It's really, really exciting. Um, and there's a lot of education going on between different people. Some people are like quite wizards, are quite good at it, and other people are like, oh, I find this technology so difficult. And, and so I, I'm, especially in 91, 92, reading into that so that's quite interesting yeah and people like actually cancelling their subscriptions because they don't understand it which exactly <laughs> kind of funny <laughs> yeah which <laughs> or even uh, pamphlets explaining how to write right emails. yeah, yeah. yeah. you people. need to have your <laughs> like, manual caps, next to you <laughs> if you put caps that's yelling so yeah yeah and there's definitely those like little pieces that are uh, sort of lost today and totally means something different um which i think we've talked about as well where you know like all of these x's at the bottom of an email is mm. just like a fun way to sign off on your email but now yeah. it's just like all these kisses, kisses. yeah i came across that before <laughs> Anne was being incredibly enthusiastic yeah. and very <laughs> lost in translation there definitely yeah, yeah. I, this is probably off topic but i was, had a conversation with a guy this morning um who is probably in his 60s and uh, was in the U.S. Navy for a good chunk of his career and was talking about 
when they first somehow this subject came up and I mentioned oh, I was going to have this conversation tonight and he was saying oh yeah when they first started using computers I said well I said it was the military who really developed this system it was called the RAPNET before it was called the internet and, then, and he was saying oh yes and he had two stories he said one of the things that they first used it it was first installed on weather stations where before that they'd been using ham radio they had these remote stations in the Pacific and the Atlantic and various places that the military wanted to have the most up-to-date weather information for all of their military reasons. And that when they connected this up, it was the service people and some civilians who were the ham radio operators who were the geeks of their day <laughs> <laughs> who first got the first mm. little computers. And they just loved it because it was so much improvement over ham radio and because they were technologically inclined it all worked and so the powers that be said oh this is great these guys are using it everybody can use it and everybody was not quite so savvy or right. in tune with the technology yeah and he's even saying that within the navy it was like a total failure once they got out of the weather stations that people were just like what i don't know what to do yeah that makes sense and what year was that going to be I'd have to look back, but I would guess that would be, um, it's in Judy Malloy's book because she talks about the history gotcha. of the RAPNET, so it's probably in the... RAPNET, not DARPANET. Uh -huh. I think so, unless I could have that yeah, wrong. No. I'm guessing the 60s, but that's, we should... Okay, okay. I, I wanted to yeah. confirm because I questioned the date I had written down. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. I, I have uh, 1958 that the internet was created to like basically pioneered by the US Department of Defense, right? And so I just I second guessed that because that just seemed way too early. <laughs> and then it couldn't possibly be. Um, yeah, and, and to kind of put it all in context, it wasn't until let's see here, like nineteen eighty nine that the World Wide Web was invented. Right, it as, but it wasn't used. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I mean to kind of put that again in a more uh, global scale of the time that was when the Berlin Wall fell so that same year was when the web was really coming into being but not yet used right. wow so yeah this guy had another great story which is also off the subject but it sort of fits in on the culture side of this and he was called back during the Iraq war and worked in the Navy in supply yeah. transfer and they then had he said these what he called the very primitive laptops that they had to enter all this information in order to get all this stuff onto ships and this for, uh, I don't know my military terminology, whatever you call them, companies of soldiers or groups. We're happy with that. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> to get all of their stuff and that whoever was in charge had to enter all this and that these people were totally lost in using the computers and they, had, they were working with Saudi troops at the time who refused to use or touch the laptops because they had a name that sounded like it was Hebrew on them. And he couldn't remember what the brand was, but he said the people would not even put their hands on them. Wow. That's fascinating. Wow. It's also and so they would take them, this is the, now it turns into a humorous story. Yeah. So they discovered that they could actually take the laptops across the river into Bremen, I'm trying to remember right. A much more liberal country that butts right up against Saudi Arabia, where they could sell on the black market for like six times the value, <laughs> and then they could buy IBM products 
which people would happy and use because they were neutral. Wow. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting too because, like you were mentioning earlier, people had to know how to write all these commands, and it almost like was necessary to backtrack a little. And uh, the people who were savvy with this technology were able to develop it more. So then those people who were saying like, I just don't understand this at all. I'm not going to use it. I'm going to cancel my subscription. Um, were able to use it. And then that's where we could, you know, have actual buttons and a mouse and see things instead of having to know the commands and you might mess up. And then there's still those people who are the computer scientists now who are still developing those websites for us and building that. So it's, so much easier for us. So yeah, I think it's kind of, we almost have to be convinced to use it. Well, we are fairly disconnected from the concept of needing to type in commands and having like code commands, right? I mean, it, 1993 was when Mosaic or a um, interface system was really going to have come out, right? right. And so uh, the, the millennials have kind of lived their life with this interface system where you can click on things. Um, but yeah. that, that was new and exciting. Uh, we actually have some comments in the files that are talking about, you know, the GUI's finally up. This is very, very exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, and it took me a little while because uh, we were looking at a yeah. file and it, what did it say? Oh, it was hilarious. It was, it was actually the same email which was like, I'm going online. At the end, it just said, go GUI, go GUI, go GUI. Like, three lines <laughs> were, <laughs> go GUI. And I was just like, what is... What's goo? What's gooey? What is the gooey thing? G O E Y. Okay. I think. Uh, no, I know. I, I just making sure it wasn't the G U I I. Yeah. So because gooey itself is spelled G U I for graphic user interface, and yeah. so to have it be like this kind of silly word, the way we, that we say it was right. just it was very interesting. Like a yeah. For it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah. I also had a question not to go too oh, far no, over, absolutely. but. Um, I was also wondering what exactly uh, in ArcSwire what the role you played in that organization as well, because I think that would help build a little context yeah. for our uh, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Mm -hmm. I, I think my actual title is Communications Manager, or Publica uh, Publications, and it's changed over time. Yeah. But most <laughs> of what I did was deal with, with marketing and teaching people what the system was so we could get more people involved. I was kind of the external face. I mean, I did some work certainly within the Artsfire community, but a lot of what I did was preparing the materials, including these manuals about writing email, <laughs> all of these instructions, so that we both could help new users who came on manage the system, but also we literally would travel around at some points talking to organizations and explaining you know, why you needed to get involved in this and here's who else was participating and here were the benefits and uh, then yeah. we had sort of a second team who would come along and actually teach them how to do it once they signed up. So it was a little bit communications, a little bit marketing. Uh, graphics too. Yeah, and some graphics. I actually did the graphics of the original user interface, which I don't know if we have pictures here on the wall. This isn't going to help people that are listening. We can point to the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> But eventually there was the one with buttons and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. we actually yeah. just came across that in the files as well, yeah. which was, was a glorious little thing. I wish we would have pulled some out yeah. and been able to present some of the, yeah. the previous work. Even the resolution of the screens was much coarser in those days. Yeah. Uh, so 
so even our user interface didn't look anything like Google or Amazon. <laughs> it was well, now we have 4K. Pixelated. <laughs> yeah. so, so, as part of a ArtsWire subscription, you received a quick guide, right, to to online. Is that right? It was like the condensed manual, and then there was a full manual. Uh, can you tell a little bit about the size of each of those? Well, the quick manual was, I think, just like eight pages. It was fairly <laughs> short. It was. That's pretty quick. Of course, quick. we would mail these out on paper to people mm-hmm. in those days. The user manual itself was probably a hundred pages and came in a three-ring binder. <laughs> <laughs> instructions of how to do this and how to do that. Uh, a lot of which really had to do with the, the software that Artsfire ran on. It is something that's in those days was called a conferencing system. And it really was like a tree of, of file storage. I mean, and essentially, in Artsfire language, we'd say, oh, you want to go to Artsfire News, or you want to go to the Arts and Safety archives and the Arts and Safety discussion. What you actually were doing was simply maneuvering yourself to, like, through a set of folders, is how we would look at it today. Oh. It was through a file tree. I mean, now we would say folders within folders at that time folders didn't exist, so they structurally kind of ran the same way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the language we used was like, go to this place or go to that place, which, you know, it's analogous to a library. We're like sending you to a shelf or to a, a room where there's a conversation going on. We're kind of our two No, uh, and some, some online places try to define, describe what they were doing as a house, right? Yeah. The front door, the... Very interesting. It's like different methods of trying to create a language for how to use the internet was being t- just different with everyone. It's like which one has survived. Yeah. <laughs> and which one, how to help people understand it as a place. Mm. And how, to help, how to help understand it. Right? Yeah. How this tree or how this house works exactly and what's the best analogy for, for whoever is using it. One of the it. real challenges there was, now a lot of that's done through graphics. So you manipulate your way through a website and you sort of know where you are, either there's a little you know, menu stream across the top that reminds you so you can back up. But in the text-based interface, you would say, oh, it's, I you know, really want this room, or you know, I'm just looking for a real example here. You know, you want to go to the craft net or something. Right. So you would select that one, you would push the return button, and basically then your screen would wipe. <laughs> and this new text screen would come up that would say CraftNet. And so the ability to envision yourself within that structure, you had sort of had to invent that in your own mind. It was not present for you in any way. Mm. It's almost like a labyrinth. You could get so far in and yeah. then not know. Or simply things were just simply wiped and replaced on the screen. So the thought of this being a structure and getting back to the menu. Some people just jumped right into it. But a lot of people, that was one, as you mentioned, would give up in total confusion. Yeah. Was there an interest in, in creating or presenting Artswire as being this physical space if people were talking about it as, as like a house or, you know? Was those were, I think those were other systems, you know, because yeah. we looked at other other folks trying to do this. Mm-hmm. Even to have, say, Labyrinth would have been helpful, right? Because it's, you can imagine a physical place with tunnels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, is, it doesn't really work Mm-hmm. I'm really going to remember that I was uh, sort of divided up the structure into resources that were really 
files, you know, papers or things or articles that you could go read, as opposed to discussions which were active, live. But we, at the very beginning, we didn't have those go read them kind of files. It was all the discussions, yeah. and we were only Artswire. Uh, Artswire was primarily a series of conversations, and one of them might have been about the technical aspects of it, but it wasn't. It wasn't a standing file so much. Yeah. So, was it also fairly common to, like, I know this is sort of Anne's thing to kind of print out all of these uh, pages, but also like. I feel like that's also, um, like, was that a common, not fear, but, like, not trusting the, the, the internet to be able to hold it there, the yeah, online like system to actually, the, that kind of, like, again, like, cloud storage, like, I know I save my photos on, like, five different places because I don't want to lose my photos, and I'm a little nervous about the cloud, but... So it, was there that fear of like, I might not be able to get back to this conversation or? To some degree, and the yeah. people didn't necessarily trust the system. Right. And it was sometimes hard to find your way back to things. Right. Um, I mean, that was largely a function of the interface, is that uh, even the graphics of it, as you can see by some of these things, are, were very flat. And this list of discussions or topics, it just continued to grow. And it was just right. this linear list. Yeah. I mean, the ability, which didn't come until much later, to group and sort those topics. Yeah. When we got to the graphic interface, then we were able to separate those things and, you know, provide a much more intuitive, I think, more attentive, intuitive way through to them. One of the things that we also bump into in the files is someone's comment of, like, I have kind of, um, like, downloaded these files or, like, done some kind of capturing of the conversations and that they're going to read them offline. And that was a kind of a cost consideration, right? That being online for a prolonged period of time was really expensive, and so you would download things? How, how did well, that download work? download was not an idea then. I mean, there was, did you ever use Gopher? Yeah, there were Gopher sites. Uh, but I think the answer to the question is less, it was rooted in technology to some degree. But yes, it's true. And some people were paying for their service on their telephone bill, and it was in those days not by data transfer, but by the amount of time you were on the system, just like making a call, a long mm-hmm. call costs more. And in some places, those were long distance calls. Mostly. Yeah, mostly. Depending on where you were located. So there was a cost factor. So the idea of okay. capturing things or copying and pasting it and printing it out and reading it. Okay. The other so thing that happened is if you were in a residential situation and using your home telephone line, it wasn't until later. In our story, that people began to get a second dedicated line for their modem. But if the incoming call came in, it would cut you off <laughs> on your phone uh, number. Right, yeah. They were diving out on your same landline that people might call in on. So just shut off on you. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I do remember that briefly yeah. when I was pretty young. <laughs> but yeah. And I remember working for so I was on a lot, so finally getting a second phone line. Right. But in that I shared with a fax machine because faxing was still the real thing. Right. You'd unplug one and you plug the other <laughs> in. <laughs> and a little place yeah. in the wall. And, and for me, my memory was being in a hotel room because we were constantly traveling around to, and trying to figure out how where to, where to plug in the modem. And usually it was under the bed, and so it required moving the bed. <laughs> right. And yeah, unplugging the phone and plugging the modem in. And 
and then trying to figure out how to how to dial past their switchboard, and because that wasn't an easy. Most hotels don't didn't let you just have a, you know one external line, so it was it was complicated. Oftentimes, hotel phones would have like for an outside line you'd dial nine or something, and then wait for a tone, and then you could dial the local number. Right. So to program that in your modem, <laughs> it wasn't going to wait for the tone. It just dialed beep, 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 like this. But somebody, one of these wizards, discovered that if you put commas in... Right, between the numbers. Between the numbers, it would hold a certain amount of time. So you'd go and get the hotel's number, and you'd go into the modem place and enter what it was supposed to dial, and you'd enter nine, and then like 10 or 15 commas. And then the number, and then you'd try it and see if that was a long enough pause. That didn't work. You go back and add some more comments. That's wonderful. That's so funny. And that kind of reminds me also of your uh, story of the um, portable printer and your portable computer. Portable, yeah. Right. Portable. Portable. <laughs> so. And then hotels started providing this separate little uh, network. Plugs and they thought that was just like oh they Cost were so with it <laughs> giving you this great service. Oh my god, that's wonderful. And you'd pay extra for it. <laughs> I want a business room that's got my internet connection. So, in in your boxes, either a, a Lizzie or Zen, mm-hmm. did you run across something that you want to ask Tamara? Um, let me see. Uh, well, mine mine's all about the beginnings of the technical working group. I don't know if that was. Something you were directly oh, that was involved 90, in. 90. That was 90. Yeah, my, my box is not the most interesting at the moment. Just, <laughs> <laughs> this is the other thing with our boxes. We, we big them up, but a lot of the time it's just sorting out practical details, logistics, and there's lots of random conversation about how to do this and that. Um, but yeah, so mine was just about getting the working group in order to start the process of going online is what I'm sort of reading yeah. into. I am sort of interested in how, like... How, and this is going back to the culture wars, but how that relates to today and what's going on today. And I don't know, just kind of everyone's thoughts on that. And that's very broad, but. Yeah, I, I think that there is most certainly something to be said for the fact that the culture wars were widespread, um, that it didn't just affect one community or one city or you know, one demographic, that it was really a universal experience in that sense. Um, And at the same time, there were those who were much more affected, particularly, let's say, the arts community in terms of censorship, right? And what exactly that meant for an artist who was producing. I guess in part, like, I'm I'm curious about uh, both Anne and Tomer's memories of, of the culture wars and what you experienced of them like yeah. what kind of media was coming out did you guys go to protests what yeah. what exactly was taking place and, and where were you well I will just say that at the same time arts where I was getting started there were there were a series the national campaign for, for freedom of expression was getting started and I had a kind of hand in that mm-hmm. for a while um, and the national campaign the National Campaign for Freedom of the Expression in the Arts was involved in kind of working against the um, the censorship that had been seen right. within the NEA. Right. So well, not just the NEA, but but at museums that would would uh, you know accept a show but then reject it. 
as we saw with Robert Mapplethorpe in Washington, D.C. It wasn't just around the NEA. It was around censorship in general. But, you know, the Congress, Congress was, I think one of the things that Artswire was a part of, and I wouldn't give Artswire, well, I would give the organization certainly lots of credit, but not exclusive credit, was one of the things that happened as a result of the culture wars meetings, beginning with the NEA grant vetoes, was this beginning of awareness of how much of this censorship in, in cultural in cultural sector was occurring. And both the NCFE and a group called People for the American Way started, uh, I'll go back on People for the American Way in a second, uh, just the process of documenting activities. And one of the things they did was put out this call and networks like Artswire, and there were certainly other ways that people were communicating, I mean, there were conferences and things happening where people got together, was simply providing a resource where institutions could start to document all of these examples. And out of the documentation, then it became, the issue became solidified. It became much more clear what was happening and who was responsible, which largely was happening in Congress, but it was happening certainly in state legislatures and in some cities and things. And they had sort of a form uh, uh, basically to fill out, and they were compiling this information into a, a database program. This, this, was this was NCFE. NCFE. And I think People for the American Way, too, because I remember they published a hardcover book. Uh -huh. I was actually yeah, searching yeah. for it today, and I couldn't come up with it, so I don't know if it went by the wayside at some point. So but examples would be, I mean, there were obviously things like major museum exhibitions that were closed or canceled in response to you know, public outcry or usually response from some part of the conservative political spectrum. But they were documenting things like school plays in high schools or colleges that were opened and closed, or plays that were, you know, in rehearsal at a college and someone in the administration says, no, you're not going to present that on this campus. So I remember that the uh, American Library Association was, was yes. in conversation with us, too, and, and had, I think, yeah. at least one person from the ALA had, a, had an account with our yeah. So the combination of the fact that the network, Artswire and others existed, and this process of documenting all of these the specific concrete instances uh, really was a significant factor in raising public awareness about this, and that also helped organizations like the NCFE then raise money, and it became an issue. It was something you could talk to elected officials and say, this is happening. Uh, yeah, to that kind was of something previously was happening, you know, quietly in different little corners where no one was necessarily squawking. Yeah, to provide a little bit of an example of, of something that was taking place and that actually really struck home for me is something that I'm deeply terrified of um, was the Cincinnati Contemporary Arts Center um, was actually shut down by police for a particular exhibition and then they were charged. Um, they were actually uh, sued, both the art center and the art director, for uh, charges of obscenity. And that's something that, that well and truly terrifies me, the concept that arts organizations or arts officials um, could, could actually be prosecuted in this way for simply displaying artwork, well and truly artwork. Well, mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's probably not history, not just history. Yeah. I mean, I think, we, you know, it, it continues to happen, and, and uh, who knows at this point whether it will rise again. Uh, it doesn't seem unlikely. Yeah, right. 
and we do we do currently live in a moment where we're much more likely to to destroy something I would say um, when it is that we look at historic moments in art yes we talk about things like iconoclasm which is the destruction of images but the, um, the number of images that were actually destroyed is pretty low. Uh, really, that was an issue of where things were located. So, okay, you can't have this altarpiece in a church anymore, but instead of destroying it, you'd move it somewhere else. It was now a secular uh, painting, put in quotes. Um, or to have something like, let's say, Michelangelo's Last Judgment in the Sistine Chapel, that it was simply uh, given some additional painting, right? So that some of the figures were now wearing little loincloths for lack of a better word, and that that was a way to address it, right? And so it means that it's still preserved, and yet I think there's a little bit more of a slash and burn technique um, to, yeah, to contemporary practice, just because there is this consumerism that's, that's taking place within art. Yeah. It's almost just too much to have, mm-hmm. and it's, it is, a slash and burn is a really good way to describe it. You were mentioning Cincinnati, and that's Robert Maplethorpe, isn't it? That is correct. But we probably should mention for the readers what kind of work he's producing, why people were so worried about what it was. Yeah, and I think that in part, we do have to remember that we live in a different moment right now. Um, our, our access and ability to all kinds of images, particularly pornographic images, has skyrocketed. And that those are um, kind of a, a, an assumed component of online existence, I would almost say. Whereas when it is that we're dealing with, let's say, the 1980s to buy, let's say, a, um, a gay magazine, like kind of a playboy for, for homosexual relationships, that was going to be wrapped in cellophane. You couldn't look at it inside the newsstand, right? You had to purchase it and then you could take it home and view it. Um, so that was kind of the, the culture that was um, present at the time uh, regarding particular image consul- uh, consumption. And what Lizzie was talking about is the artwork of Robert Mapplethorpe. And Jess, do you want to say a little something on that? Yeah, so um, basically, like a lot of this work was viewed as pornographic and uh, really um, it was his way of uh, sort of using the body to create these quote-unquote sculptures I guess and uh, he didn't see it necessarily as pornographic and um, I think that you know like so the way that people would see it is it was um, in these like what glad like raised um they basically created lifted display tables there we go um so that they were at a height that let's say a child couldn't look in but an adult would be able to see right um and and to kind of uh comment on on what it is that robert maplethorpe was trying to do with these images he was really trying to take a loaded subject like sexuality uh and to to present it and to really bring it to this other level where it is that we could interact with it. And he viewed particularly that sexuality was not a limited experience, right? That everyone right. experienced and it. And it's not something that needs to be feared necessarily. Like, um, you know, some of these images would be a little uh, much for some people, uh, but also it would include these people very obviously consenting to whatever was happening in the image. And so it was a bit of like, this is what people are into, but also they're okay with it. And so it doesn't need to affect you in any way. And it shouldn't affect you because it's not you that we're talking about. Right. And so uh, it is these people's business what they do with their time. And at the same time, Robert Mapplethorpe was able to share 
um, his personal life experience through his photographs. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think often gets overlooked, but I think is really crucial, is that Robert Mapplethorpe wasn't just doing um, what we would now potentially call pornographic images or really dealing with, and it was the fact that it was black homosexual males that he was photographing and that that right. was this really tense uh, cultural moment for that kind of a thing. But he was also doing things like celebrity portraits and he was charging up to $10,000 you know, for, for a single session and you received two images of his choice. So that gives you any kind of an idea what level of photography he was really working at and he also did series of flowers and series of taking photos of sculptures rather than the human form as sculpture as well. So he was really dynamic in that sense, but there was a component of, of really sexual, sensual yeah. photographs. It's actually on that very topic of race that really grounds it into today and why, what make it quite relevant today, because what was really controversial about it was the fact that he was these black homosexuals, although it's a particular form of pictures. And so thinking about today and the race, I don't know, like a race wars, but essentially this horrible climate that we're in right now with this very Islamophobia, and also still Black Lives Matter. They're still very important issues. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder whether anyone has thought about whether some artists of the time might try the same tactics as Robert Maythorpe doing, normalising these kind of images so that people don't think about it as something other or try and push it away. I mean, we very recently had the ban against several Islamic countries from allowing it to come into the, into the country. And I think there's another part of Maythorpe that sometimes gets overlooked and in addition to what's already been said, he also really was in depicting sort of the very narrow field of sexual activity that a lot of people had probably not heard of, mm -hmm. let alone seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So not only were the images arresting, uh, but they were probably shocking in the truest sense of the word shock that I didn't know that people literally did this. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Intentionally. And at the same time, what I think and so and this is reasons why he sort of became, his work became a lightning rod, uh, was not only was this imagery that people hadn't seen, but what differentiated, I think, from the basic magazine pornography is that he was so good at it. Yeah, this yeah, was yeah. an artist who was talking about these bondage and things and presented it in such a way that it had way more power than simply documenting. Yeah. that this happened. So I think that's a I very think good his point. artistry is sometimes overlooked in the focus on the shock value of the content yeah. of these imagery. Yeah. You know, a lesser talent, you know, may not have stirred the pot in quite yeah. such a way. Yeah. Absolutely. The fact that the work was very present and unflinching, kind of. And I think to go off of that even, not having access to it also allowed for like severe misinterpretations of his work. Yeah. yeah. So um, which caused these major issues as well. Rejection of his own pictures. I mean, he submitted like what over a hundred different photos, and only a handful of them actually became circulated in our shows. Um, there was no. there was certainly um, criticism actually that took place of his work, and the, there was you know a closing of a gallery in Washington D.C. The Cincinnati Art um, the Contemporary Art Center was actually that was that persecution was based around hosting Robert Mapplethorpe's images, and it is in part because it was so shocking, right? So his photographs were. Um, depicting sadomasochism um, and that's not something that's typically in circulation right as, as image consumption but it was the fact that he had such an eye uh, in terms of his ability to create composition and to be able to create these really powerful beautiful images 
that's really, I think, what took his art, again, as Tom was saying, to the next level, but also relates back to Lizzie's point in terms of how it is that contemporary artists could actually be adopting some of the same techniques to address current issues. Mm -hmm. So uh, Robert Maplethorpe was able to show beauty and form and elegance, and it wasn't about conforming to previous perceptions. It was about displaying this intrinsic quality of grace, almost. Yeah. And and I think that that's as applicable today as, as it was then. Yeah, because what he's doing is, he sh by making these artworks and creating this, because he must have put these artworks in. He's at a time, you, um, Tom was mentioning earlier about this conservative America was really powering through as well. I mean, who has been there, but certainly was coming to the surface. So by, he knew by putting these works out, there are going to be a lot of people who didn't like them. Mm -hmm. And the, that's the point, to get things to be discussed. Mm -hmm. And so that, and, and try and, you don't solve problems by ignoring them. You've got to talk to people. And so I feel like there could be contemporary artists who put out these, I don't know, I can't even think of what images it might be, but that will engage in such discussion in that we tackle in problems of Islamophobia or things like the burqa and women's rights and all these kind of things. Yeah, we have actually been seeing more recently, at least within the last year that I've been aware of, um, more fashion geared towards those who wear hijab. Yeah. And, and so actually taking into consideration the clothing requirements, um, or the, so let me take that back, the clothing choices <laughs> being made, um, and, and actually providing these very fashionable, very professional, very feminine or you know, more masculine, whatever is cared for, clothing options and that includes sportswear and things like that which mm -hmm. you know previously there hadn't been a huge market for that in the United States or at least there wasn't a provider for, for these kind of considerations yeah I also think it's interesting that um, going back to there wasn't a whole lot of ways of getting information back in 1890 that uh, Robert Maplethorpe was providing in uh, art shows whereas now you can go practically anywhere um, from a domesticated area to any public area and find um, anything you chose, so choose. Um, but yet, when you look at similarities to people very apprehensive about even talking about the issues, it's super parallel to what's going on now. Mm -hmm. um, and it almost makes me question whether or not the same tactics that Robert Maplethorpe used um, in creating his artwork and raising those questions would be even effective now because of how accessible we see those images every day. Um, and so I wonder uh, what's that next step for artists yeah. to bring it up, to give that viewer that, that question in their head that they've never really considered. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can also say that like um, it is widely accessible, but maybe maybe today you still have to seek it a little. It's so much easier because you can just go on Google but you also have to go on Google. So what happens if people like Robert Maplethorpe did start projecting on buildings where you're forced to see this stuff? Um, mm -hmm. And so it's it's kind of this, like, I don't know, like you can, like, it's how much can you force someone to do yeah. that? It is fascinating because some of his images have come back to the surface and actually uh, he recently had a display where it is that one of his images was on the side of a building um, right. right in Times Square. And it was just fantastic. And partially it's being displayed because it was believed to be a racially charged um, image. Now whether or not he created it for that purpose is, is kind of a moot point. It's going to be uh, two figures in profile 
um, an African-American male, and then a man who looks almost albino. He is, is so incredibly fair-skinned, and both of them are naturally very bald, and, and one leans over the other's shoulder. So you're seeing these two figures you know, united um, in, in the composition, and that was you know, kind of coming back up, right, right. And, and being displayed once more and used once more, potentially for a different cultural purpose. Right, mm -hmm. and it, it definitely feels a bit of, like, um, this is sort of NEA-specific, but, you know, talking about these moments where um, you could have your grant taken back. Um, and today, I mean, it's been discussed that the NEA, not, not just having a budget cut, but will be taken away completely right and so it's like it's almost it's not even having the chance anymore to apply to these grants or to to be a part of these organizations but completely having every opportunity taken away from you and in a sense it's almost like the next step of you can't do that you can't show that or you you can't say that um, and it is sort of that that freedom taken away so I was thinking about this today, and I had sort of two contradictory thoughts, and one which is probably get me in all kinds of trouble, but no one's going to be able to respond to immediately, was I was actually reading somewhere about people saying, oh my god, no, we've got to save the NEA from, from the Trump administration. And it crossed my mind to think, you know, this is probably two small potatoes to deal with. If we're concerned about the Trump administration, let's not waste a bunch of time on the NEA, because it can easily be replaced. It's not a lot of money. Private philanthropy could step up and fill that void without noticing the difference that the issues in terms of basic freedom and preserving democracy are so much bigger that mm -hmm. my first thought was this is just let's not put energy there. Yeah. Yeah, and then I later read a piece that just coincidentally popped up and I believe it's in well it's on New York Times website so it's within the last couple of days that went on to say, in addition to the fairly small budget of the NEA, it's actually smaller than the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in terms of total yeah. grant making every year. Uh, here's all the other value that they provide. And they talked about the expertise that comes out of there and the way that federal arts support supports the states and the states re-grant that locally and it gets down to counties and small towns, that they provide a kind of imprimatur, to use a Christian term, or the kind of a legitimacy that those grants then move people along in their careers, not only simply by giving them confidence, but allow them to access other funding sources. Uh, they went on and talked about their educational role and their sort of role in international funding, and so I thought, okay, maybe I should not be so quick to jump on this idea, but I <laughs> yeah. still, at the end of the day, sort of think that... I think bigger battles to be fought. That's definitely true. The, the NEA can be replaced so easily. But it, I think it's also this feeling of, like, for people who are just starting as an artist or, you know, like, what can we do? Because it's realistically so hard to just come out of a university and, you know, if you've gotten the chance to even go to a university for art, which seems to be a case and uh, for many people now um, what do you do with that after how do you make money and so it's like your first thought is okay I'll try to get a grant or I'll try to do a residency and with this being taken away it's like okay that's that was my option and it's gone and 
now I guess I'll find a random job. <laughs> but, even, but even when, one thing that it's important to remember is that even when looking back on it, it seems like the NEA had a lot of money and a lot of artists were getting money. Yeah. It was still like it's so one, it's like one shot at it. And I think the some artists have, a, a few artists have made a life of getting grants and residencies and so on. Right. But not most of us. Right. Um, and and so we, we have to make it up in other ways. Yeah. And Definitely. so, I mean, I don't know your, yeah. your thoughts on that, Tyler, but that, it's, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I've not been on that end of artist funding very much. I've certainly been parts of projects and things that have received mm -hmm. that kind of funding. But yeah. There's a complete sh oh, Carol, sorry. No, I'm sorry. And I'm a big fan of the endowment. I'm oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. been a catalyst within the last year there, and I think the whole system oh, uh, is great. But I, this, my comment was that, that if we're talking about, you know, the failure of the world economy, or if we're talking about nuclear war, yeah. but I'm right. quite willing to not put a bunch of time yeah. in the same <laughs> 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 Those do seem to not be out, out of the question. Yeah. Yeah. Anything yeah, it's a shift in priorities yeah. for different people. And I think it, it isn't to say that artists and art don't have a role in all of this. Because I think yes. we can and we do and, and we can make a big difference. Um, not because they're going to give us money at the other end, but because of what we have to offer and what's needed right now. And I think that that's, that's my, my take on it is, mm -hmm. is that's that's our contribution, and it's a contribution that's big, not not just around our own um, specific needs. Um, they may be met, but I mean, I, this is no. I, won't forget. Mm -hmm. I was going to detour on another hall. Wow. Yeah, it's, it seems to me in oh, this discussion, <laughs> it's almost like NEA needs to prove it's worthy, and that it just keeps going on. But it's not really doing so. But I don't. These things are never going to stop artists. If there is an absolute no money, people will find other ways. Maybe they won't make such expensive artworks. Maybe they'll do more graphic things. Maybe they'll do more live performance art, where literally at at protests and things like that, they turn them into forms of art. These things happen to make change. People always make change through visual elements because it is the quickest way to. Yeah, you see something, you react from it instantly. Um, but it's an interesting shift in priorities and then moving away from the art world. Also, I've come across in the UK. So, um, very recently, we had Michael Gove, our um, education secretary, got rid of history of art as an A-level subject, which what? is what you take when you're 17 and 18. I took that. And he, mm -hmm. along with archaeology, some classic subjects, um, in order that you focus on your English and your science and your maths. Now, if you're like me, all those three are nah stick to art, that's what I like to do, that's what I was better at, so, um, and there was a huge, huge, like, protest about getting rid of history of art, because, well, what's the point, it's just a load of old white men painting pictures of white men, like, what's the point, and then you look, then the, uh, the big argument, and actually, the history of art, I know history of art won, and it's still now a subject, but some of the other subjects have lost, the big argument for history of art was if you look at what's happening in Palmyra, and you look at the Middle East, and the destruction of artworks, in particular, mm -hmm. national heritage, and what and that, that they, these images are becoming really strong political symbols for some people, particularly ISIS and some of things about Mary. So if you learn about the history of these objects and how important they are, that's quite you can create quite a force to stop it happening. I'm 
I'm not saying you know art historians form an army, but it's you know there's a. <laughs> I mean, I joined well, something up, but like, yeah, me and me and Karen yeah. would, do, would do great, but um, <laughs> you know, it's it's the appreciation of our objects and that these are really really quite important things. So well, it's I just it's, yeah, it's international. It's yeah, going back to that, it's also think important to note that the NEA wasn't around this whole time either. I mean, even since the founding of America, I mean, uh, art wasn't even allowed for the longest time, mm. um, just because it was an elite thing. And when we were starting, uh, it was just working class people. We had our hands in the dirt, and that was it. And uh, so it's kind of funny that people are. There's two sides, and there's the time where Tom was talking about the NEA. If it's gone, it's, it's going to be okay. And I kind of understand that because we didn't have the NEA for so long, and yet we still need art. Um, and then we have the NEA now, and it just helps us get farther along in art. So I completely understand uh, where Tom was coming from, and mm. also where Lizzie's coming from, because there's two sides. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. And the history shows too. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like, the, like, you know, for so long you were only allowed to do, you know, uh, religious painting or, you know, religious sculpture. And so it's always been, um, like, watched over and made sure you're doing the right kind of art. And I think now more than ever we have the ability to reach out a little bit further and express ourselves a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But... I think that's a very good point, and and one of the things that I find so fascinating is that when we're talking about religious artwork, right, and there was oversight of the production of religious artwork, that was um, basically preparatory oversight, right? Mm -hmm. So here, preparatory oversight. So it's, there was uh, instructions, right? You had to follow these guidelines. Mm -hmm. This was theologically acceptable, and so that's what you made. And now we do this retroactive Doing it's kind of this retaliation of like, is your artwork acceptable now that it's done, and and that's very different. Uh, it's one thing to work within a mm-hmm. a structure, and another to have a cookie cutter placed on you once you've made your mm-hmm. cake, right? And those, I think that's actually kind of the tension that we're seeing is that we have an art world, well and truly an art world, that is so open and so flexible and so willing to try new things that there aren't really limits that. Anything can be art when yeah. it's approached in the right way. And yet, when you start to put limits on that, that, that becomes very, very tense. And that's actually what we're seeing right now. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I'm really curious about are what are some thoughts on what would be an effective artwork? What would be something that an artist mm-hmm. could, could work on creating, something that would kind of touch the right points and move society, be engaged politically, but also have, have a result? Tom, I don't think you should talk about the play you worked in. Because I think it could. But you could tell me maybe I'm wrong. Well, yes, and I'm happy to do that. I was so thinking of the bigger should, answer to the question. Okay, go ahead, do that. <laughs> no, it's part, it's, that story is probably part of that, and actually Good. I have that back in my mind as well. But um, one way of thinking about that question is that it history moving forward and the work that artists are doing is... Uh, what anarchy and decentralized and individual and personal mm-hmm. so it's easier to look back at a movement or at changes and say well this occurred and that occurred and so now I'm going to name that mm-hmm. 
And when we're in the present and looking forward, we don't have that kind of perspective. So I think even now, I've seen all kinds of responses are happening since the election, which is probably informing your question, yeah. and it's informing everything we do right at this point, at least in this country and mm. other countries as well. <coughs> uh, so I don't know if there's a way of even addressing the question of what might artists do other than look at what actually is occurring, because that's the observable part of the evolution mm -hmm. of that set of ideas. Uh, Anne mentions a piece, it's, it's called The Fever, and it's written and produced by a group in Brooklyn called 600 Highwaymen, and it's a performance piece that's not exactly theater, it's probably easier to describe it as a combination of uh, poetry and dance and interaction with the audience. Mm -hmm. I've been working on this piece with them for almost a year, actually, now we're into January here, and we premiered it in New York at the Under the Radar Festival at the Public Theater just <coughs> two weeks ago, right at the 1st of January, and ran there for three weeks. But we had also toured the show in the fall, both after and before the election, and we're working on it in the summer and last spring, and we're here on the boards in Seattle last winter. So one of the things I think where Anne is prompting me to go <laughs> here is not only did the show itself change with the experience of the election, but the way that people participate and respond to it has probably changed in more ways. There weren't significant changes in the text or in the action, I think there were some really broad and significant changes in the way that we all performed the various parts that we did because our reality was so vastly different mm -hmm. from one point to the other. And I should have said this earlier in this explanation, but in addition to the format of the show being this combination of poetry and dance, this piece is about the way groups accept and reject people who either are or they feel are different than they are. Yeah. So if it's about anything, it's about race relations, it's about immigration, it's about international relations, it's about the way religious people and within religious communities respond to outsiders. Uh, you know, it's about the history of Europe, it's about the Holocaust. It encompasses yeah. a lot of these things in a way that's presented very much as poetry and as abstraction. Uh, so the, the interactions then are a crucial component of what's taking place and that's interactions between performers or with the audience? It's with the audience. The piece is, begins being performed by the cast and by the end it's performed mostly by the audience as we teach them mm -hmm. how to do this and so every performance is different. Mm -hmm. I mean sometimes yeah. they're, you know, if you videotaped it and even did it with or without the sound, you say, oh those two are exactly the same but the emotional experience and the resonance of each performance is vastly different mm -hmm. from parts to part. Yeah, and turning to look what artists might look at, I was just on Amazon just browsing books that were most popular at the moment, and it is just really interesting to see how since the election certain texts have become really popular and are almost out of order. George Orwell is a really good example. Yeah. Also in Germany, hates it, but... Um, Mein Kampf has become almost that it's risen again, and they're thinking we should do another edition. And they're like, well, no, we shouldn't really sell it because of the ideas that was in it. But it's, it's fascinating to see how people are trying to find answers, and they're looking to 100 years in the past to find those answers. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the other thing, which which is sort of like what I think might kind of also a route many artists might go, and certainly the media has taken the moment, is humour and comedy. And I feel like satire in particular mm. is enormous. There is a, actually, I feel, a serious market growing for taking satire out of politics because we have such a voice against, especially what I've experienced in America, different to the UK, the way that TV shows talk about politics and take them mick out of politics in a kind of way that's different to the UK. Take the mick, um, like joke about it more. So I think yeah, that's a really good like, idea. To, to, to tease or to mock. To tease, mock, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forget that's an English word. <laughs> um, but I mean, things like, things like Saturday Night Live and, okay, and it's, there seems to be a sort of competition to who does the best impression, you know, and all the other things are growing. And I've seen ones from the Netherlands, from the UK, from France, from Germany, like all these different places. And I just feel that artists might actually take comedy as the best way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's a good point because I think anytime you can make something super depressing, for lack of a better word, yeah. into something into a brighter light, it's kind of easier to talk about it and kind of um, not only talk about it, but think about it by yourself as mm-hmm. well at that point because it's not so daunting at that point. Exactly. I think it also makes it uh, so much more obvious how ridiculous it is. Yeah. Like yeah. when yeah. you make fun of something, like if you're being really dramatic about something and then you make fun of it later you're like wow I was being really dramatic and you can really notice that mm-hmm. where if you just keep that same dramatic attitude to it it just feels like it's the end of the world yeah and it can just keep feeling that way it also makes it more accessible um, that when yeah. you have something that's really upsetting it is incredibly difficult to talk about or to want to incorporate in your daily life because let's face it, we all have enough things on our plate, right? We don't want to add existential despair to it. Um, and and so if it's humorous... And it ma- <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so if it makes you laugh, then, then you can go ahead and continue to consume this yeah. media, right? You can continue right. to stay up to date and and not and not shut off, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, reminds me, I was thinking earlier when we were talking about Michael Pope, I saw a performance also when I was back east by a group... And there's a sound, an African sound in this name that I don't make it the right way that I can approximate it. And they're called Shastagol. (laughs) (laughs) When it's written, it's spelled Shasta, just like it sounds. Go is spelled in French, G-E-A-U-X. And then Pop is spelled P-O-P, but when they say it, they say Shastagol. And they make a sound that I can't make. I have to go like that to make this noise. Shasta (laughs) can do it very loudly. Anyway, she is African but Dutch is homeless in the Netherlands and she has two other musicians with her who are African but I think in the United States at this point and this is terribly unfair to describe something on audio that is so visual mm. but she is a performer who dresses and performs kind of like these Japanese anime cartoon figures with a very brilliantly colored almost plasticized wig and a futuristic and fairly revealing sort of sexual kind of costume and her the two guys that provide the backup music which I don't understand how they do it it's electronic and comes out of little machines that I don't know how they're manipulating them um, maybe it's all recorded but they keep doing things and things happen <laughs> <laughs> and she interacts greatly with the audience and carries a wireless mic around with her and 
sings and talks and dances and gets very involved with people and it sort of gets more and more intimate and fairly sexual, but it's all kind of this brilliant colored and plastic. And it's like I totally did not know what to make of this. Mm-hmm. And even danced with her at one point as part of this performance because they were getting people around. And was reasonably uncomfortable and just trying to figure out what it was that we were doing there because at one point this seems very exploitive and at another point it seemed kind of silly and in many ways was entirely an artifice. And a friend who was there said to me, she said, my God, she's taken feminism to a whole new level. And I thought, oh, hello. (laughs) It was like a total revelation of the fact that she was doing all this and it was from a position of power, not from a position of being exploited. And it was just astounding. Anyway, if you get a chance, look them up. I'm sure they have a presence online. Right, yeah, absolutely. And that I'm way off topic. Oh, I no, 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 that was great. I, I love how this conversation has gone in and out of technology, in and out of yesterday and today, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, in and out of art, and so. Yeah. I, is there anything more that we would like to you have prepared questions that you didn't get on? to ask? Yeah. <laughs> Back to the agenda. Or prepared. Or prepared oh. Um, oh. Yeah, we were going to ask, do you happen to know of something uh, that goes as the acronym RACCOON? And, <laughs> um, so, we're going to quiz okay, you on so, all the arts words. Correct me if I get this wrong, uh, Jess, because you should know it as well. So, um, but, but RACCOON being the acronym is R-A-C-C-O-O-N? Yeah. No, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't know what it is. Okay. Okay. Tom or Ben? I We were going to have some funny thing with reconnecting with Bob. No, I, I don't know where well, I put my clothes. Oh. I can't do it. Did I share them with you? Do you have that file? I don't. We were also you. laughing uh, today because Anne was mentioning that, and I think it's somewhere on here, but uh, that you didn't realize until just the other day that arts wire was two words. Oh. <laughs> yes. We just got, into a, I just got into a little tussle with an editor. I wrote a review. Judy Malloy has a fabulous book that I believe Anne has. Mm-hmm. My has copy. copy? Or it's GIA's copy. But, but I need to get it back to them. Um, <laughs> I don't know that they need to get Anyway, I wrote a review of this book, and I spelled Oxfire as two words. Uh-huh. Oh, no, well, as one word. I spelled it as one word. As one word. One word. Mm-hmm. And the editor came back to us. Well, I searched online and all the history, including in... Judy Malloy's description of her own book on the Princeton Press site. She mm-hmm. uses two words. And I realized that my orientation was graphics from that brochure. Right. And that's how I always produced the logo, which you see the sideways words, right. with just barely any space. Yeah. Right. right. And all the, um, there's yes. some, some archives that we have with ASCII art, and all of them have, it, it'll say like, New Artswire logo one, and it'll be one word, but everyone else is writing it as two words, and it's yep. just so funny. This is because Tom versus the world. <laughs> <laughs> you actually had company on that, um, because up until we started doing an 
like a, a shared index of all the files and their contents, right, as our own way to keep track of what's there. I was writing it as one word, and I was yeah. quite happy to do so, and I right. was quite content. Um, this is how it should be. <laughs> and, and then I was looking at Jess, and I realized that she had a space in there. Um, so yeah, I'll oh, confess so this news is actually new to me. I've been it as one word. I'm glad I know. I also think when we eventually we trademarked the, the logo, which is the graphic. Right. But we were not able to trademark the name as Artswire because they had to get two words. Because there were two words that were both generic. Huh. And that's why. Wow. I mean, I, I didn't realize it until a long time later, but but they're not. It, part of the reason that words get combined for names is that that makes them copyrightable or yeah, trademarkable. Yeah. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I didn't know that either. Then. It was all like the logistical side of making that organiz- organization. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, well, what are you about raccoon? Oh, no, <laughs> any other, any other little things too? Yeah, is there anything that we should have asked that we didn't ask? Anything that you would love to share with us? No, one thing I had on the back of my mind, just because I had a couple conversations recently, is if you ever consider extending this conversation, one person I think would be really interesting to talk to, and I'll say that, would just be interesting to talk to, is a guy named Ted Berger who was the director of New York Foundation for the Arts, who was one of the initial supporters, both personally and eventually the organization supported Artswire, and actually we operated under their umbrella as our parent organization. And he is a fearless, long-time leader in the arts and really stuck his neck out on this project because he didn't quite get what we were up to, (laughs) but he knew that ultimately this was the way of the future. He's in New York, it would probably have to be by telephone or some of you are back there, but I've yeah. mentioned this process of talking with you folks. Oh, did you him. talk with him? Yeah, I oh. saw him when I was in New York in January, oh, and I saw him when I was in New York last summer, and the subject of Artsfire came up, because I mentioned I was writing about Judy's book. Right. No, that's wonderful, and we he do, we do have some files that, that talk about Ted yeah. Berger and his communication directly back and forth, so mm-hmm. that would be... I think I mentioned this when we were talking before, but a great story that has Ted and myself both in it. Is at some point during the culture wars, uh, Jesse Helms, Senator, the late Senator Helms, who was a great critic of anything progressive. May he roll over in his grave? Well, no, he <laughs> delivered. Apparently, people take turns delivering an invocation or a prayer when every time the Senate opens. Mm-hmm. They don't call it a prayer anymore, I think they call it an invocation. And he delivered this prayer that was a thinly this guy's diatribe against the dangers of the internet. And this was at the time when his staffers were going around showing people, you know, these locked notebooks with pictures of child pornography that were found on the internet. So we had to keep the internet out of libraries and out of schools and the best thing to do was shut it down. I mean, he was just the arch opponent of all of this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he delivered this sort of prayer that was almost in verse about, in poetic verse, I mean, um, about the dangers of the internet, which was then published and because we were Artsfire, we were tracking all of this activity of helms and things. So I wrote a parody <laughs> of it one morning. <laughs> That's what I did. I worked at home. I thought, oh, this is great. I can write parody well, of this prayer. Yeah, yeah, and folks want to know what I'm doing. She's across town. Oh my god! Posted it on Artsfire because. My vision is we were pretty much all of the same mind, and we were. 
Ted, of course, who was the director of NIFA and we were a program of NIFA, immediately saw it as, oh my God, if our board members see this, they're going <laughs> 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 to fit. And I think actually called me up, which was rare. Uh, <laughs> 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 he was into the, he did understand telephones. Yes, and he was also very gentle and kind and wonderful as he is in saying that this was a great thing to do, but I needed to think about the bigger institutional context and just because you had a thought, is now always the time or is this dinner table the time, the place to say it was mm -hmm. really his message. <laughs> you, know, you could be hurting us more than helping us. It's a wonderful <laughs> piece that you wrote. Anyway, he was my boss. Then we later in a different part of our lives got to work for years as colleagues and got to be very good that, that was at Grand Rangers in the Arts. He was a trustee of the John Mitchell Foundation. And anyway, it was just a great bit of history. Yeah, that's we were laughing about the. <laughs> we should ask him about it when we get him on. Yeah, I anyway, he, that's so my thought is he'd be somebody wonderful to talk to. No, that's he liked to call story. himself, but he was of the quill pen generation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the way he liked to talk about <laughs> I wanted to send him one of those quill pens yeah. that you guys had. Oh, I was like, goodness. I remember all of this. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. It's wonderful. Uh, that maybe will be my my invitation. Yes. I will send him that quill pen oh. and then and a handwritten note. Way. Get him on here. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of And Now. This has been Karen Beach, Jessica Capote, Zachary Heinlein, Lizzie Trelawney Venom, and Fo Tomer Peterson.